Well, good morning, church. Pastor Ray here, and right now I have the great privilege of introducing to you a very dear friend of mine and the man who will be bringing us God's word this morning. His name is Pastor Ted Duncan, and Ted is no stranger to us here at Hope Bible Church, Ottawa. Ted is a senior pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, Mississauga, and he and his wife, Lindsay, and their four boys are here with us this weekend. So, hey, let's give them a warm Hope Bible Church welcome. Great. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 84. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with, uh, with copies of uh, God's Word. We've got a full house today. If you have a, a little bit of room, um, in, like in between your chairs, you can move over to the side so that some other folks can try to find a, a seat. Just move in towards the middle a tiny bit. That's kind of a good problem to have. And uh, we're excited to, uh, to be uh, in a full, a full house uh, today. I got a bit of a word association question for you uh, here. What comes to mind when you hear me say home? Home. Do you immediately think of a place close by? Maybe you're here as a student, uh, just, you're, you're just kind of sojourning in Ottawa for three or four years while you're doing your undergrad or your master's. And so home is where you were last weekend at Easter. And, uh, and right now you're just, the place where you live right now, you wouldn't consider that your home. Maybe for others of you, uh, even this nation, you wouldn't consider your home. You have a homeland that, that comes to mind when you hear the word home. Maybe uh, if, if, if you're a student or you're new to Canada, maybe there's a sense of being homesick where you're you're longing to be back home where you are right now just simply doesn't feel right well I, I, uh, I was so uh, great to have Pastor Ray introduce me just at the very beginning uh, Pastor Ray and I served together when his home was in uh, Brampton for three or four years and you know Pastor Ray's lived in a lot of places and uh, he lived in Fort Francis Ontario sort of the London area uh, Toronto he lived in Israel uh, he sort of lived all over the place and uh, I remember very early on when when he and Natalie and their four boys first moved to Ottawa it was very soon where I was talking on the phone with Ray and Ray began to say to me you know what Ottawa is really beginning to feel like home and uh, you know that, 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 that's a really special thing and that's not just the city and the infrastructure that's not just their their the lovely four walls that they call their home that has a lot to do with all of you and that God has built and established and grown a church family here where the Kaprowskis feel at home. And Lord willing, I would hope that you would feel home here uh, as well. And uh, you guys just finished off a series called God's Heart for the Home and thinking about our home. And uh, as I was thinking about what to preach on uh, in coming uh, here today, sort of in between series, you guys are, are finished the God's Heart for Our Home series and getting ready for, for a new series, I thought, well, why not, why not think not just simply about God's heart for our home? Why don't we take some time this morning and think about our heart for God's home? And what does it mean for us to long for the presence of God, to be at home in God's house. And I think there's no better place for us to turn this morning than Psalm 84. Psalm 84. Psalm 84 begins by saying, To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. 
How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you right now by your Spirit and in the name of your Son, asking that you would speak to us through your living and active word. God, we want to humble ourselves before you. Lord, we want to lay aside all of our assumptions or preconceived notions about what your house is or what this passage says. Lord, we want to hear from you. And Lord, we don't merely want to fill our minds with intellectual knowledge, Lord. We want our hearts to be transformed by your living and active word. And so God, we ask, as we just sang, it's your breath in our lungs right now. And so Lord, we've poured out our praise to you. We have lifted our, our voices in worship to you. We pray now that we would hear your voice teaching through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. A couple of structural, structural items before we uh, dive in here. You can notice that at the end of verse 4 and the end of verse 8, you have the repetition of the word uh, selah. Uh, selah in Hebrew sounds just like the Hebrew word for lift up. And so it, it, it may be sort of a musical term, you know, lift your hands from your instrument, like a rest. It might be like lift your voice in a key change. Uh, it, it may be, and maybe have the congregation lift up and stand in the middle of uh, singing uh, this song. We don't know specifically what it, uh, what it means, but it could mean uh, one of those things. But the, those, those two selahs really divide this psalm into three parts, and that's why there are three points to this message looking at. Uh, at the three parts. You can also see the repetition of the word blessed in verse four, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Verse five, blessed are those whose strength is in you. In verse 12, blessed are those who trust in you. And each of those statements, pronouncements of blessing are found in each of the three sections. So we're going to be looking at these, these, these three blessings that come for someone who has a heart for God's house. 
But you can also notice that when I read the psalm, I didn't begin with verse 1. I began with those, those all cap notes at the beginning of the psalm. That's actually part of the inspired word of God. Those were not added by an editor afterwards. Uh, this is a part of the original writing. It says that this psalm was written to the choir master or, you know, the worship leader uh, at, at the time. And it was written according to the, the gittith, which is, again, a musical term. Like, it's, you know, this is a ballad or this is a, a hymn or uh, describing the type of song that it is. But it says that it's a psalm of the sons of Korah. There's a number of uh, psalms of the sons of Korah, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 most popularly. Uh, This psalm, Psalm 44, Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God. The sons of Korah uh, wrote a number of our favorite psalms in the Bible. And I think it would be wise for us to, to figure out who are the sons of Korah. Now, I'm going to tread quite dangerously here because I'm a guest speaker, okay? And I'm about to do something that guest speakers normally shouldn't do. Two things I'm going to do. One is I'm going to read to you from an obscure story in the book of Numbers, okay? So that's one risky thing. And then the other thing is I'm going to briefly walk you through a Hebrew genealogy, okay? So those really don't fly too well with guest speakers, but as Pastor Ray said, I've been here a few times, so hopefully I have, you know, a little bit stored up in in, in terms of a cachet where where I can actually uh, do this. So please just Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 16. We're trying to figure out who are the sons of Korah and really who is a Korah. So, Numbers 16, verse 1. Here we go. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi... Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, and the sons of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Korah was Moses and Aaron's cousin. Let let me show you how this all plays out. In verse 1, it says, Korah was the son, see him there at the bottom in the middle, was the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. And so this is just one half of Levi's family tree. So Kohath had four sons. Izhar was the father of Korah. Amram was the son, the father of Moses and Aaron. And so they're cousins. They grew up together. They went to one another's birthdays and bar mitzvahs. They shared a bunk bed on the family camping trip. They, they, they knew each other well. And Korah took issue with the fact that Moses was getting all of the attention. And they weren't, he, they weren't happy about it. And so he led this rebellion against Moses' leadership. And then I love... I love the example of what spiritual leaders are supposed to do. Look how Moses responds. He doesn't, he doesn't say, listen, I'm going to tell you a thing or two, Korah. 
Or Corey, you might have 250 uh, great leaders with you, but I've got, I've got this many leaders on my side. No, that's not what Moses does. Look what he does. He falls on his face. Not before Korah, but before the Lord. And, and listen, this is, this is spiritual leadership, is, is falling on our face saying, we do not know what to do, Lord. Would you lead us? Would you help us? And here's how God responds. Again, I'm just going to really summarize the story, skipping ahead to verse 22 again. And they fell on their faces. That's Moses and Aaron again. And said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and and Abiram. And so, Because of this rebellion, God tells all the people of Israel to get away from Korah and these other rebels. Then look down at verse 32. Now, whoever said the book of Numbers was boring has not read this part or the part about the talking donkey. Verse 32. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Now Moses could have done a lot of things in that moment to defend his leadership, right? He could have held an election. He could have argued. He could have debated. Moses could not make the earth swallow up. Only God can do that. When we try to handle problems our way, in a human-centered way, you get a human sort of answer. But when you do things God's way, he swallows your enemies by opening up the whole earth. And that's what happened here. It's an incredible, it's a remarkable story. So strange, so bizarre. This is who Korah is. But if you turn with me now to chapter 26 and verse 11, as it's retelling, as numbers begins and ends with a lot of numbers, lists of names. Chapter 26, verse 11 Let's go back to verse 10, actually. It says, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, when a fire devoured 250 men. And then it says, And they became a warning, verse 11, But the sons of Korah did not die. So somehow, it said, Everyone who belonged to, to Korah died, and yet there was this one, this, his sons somehow managed to survive. So in Numbers 26, 11, I think that should be coming up on the next screen. So Korah gets swallowed by the earth. Numbers 26, 11, some of the sons of Korah did not die. Now the, the sons of Korah do not reemerge again until 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 19. Let's take a look at this on the screen just to get a bit of a, a, bit of a background. 1 Chronicles chapter, um, chapter 9, verse 19, it says, The Korahites were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the threshold. The threshold is the doorway. They were the bodyguards, the bouncers, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, as their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. And so these were the doorkeepers. The sons of Korah watched the door. They were like the ushers, welcoming people into the house of God. So they were, they were sort of the, the, the doorkeepers of, of, the, of the temple, also in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, this is one of my favorite stories when Jehoshaphat is, is being uh, about to be um, 
uh, invaded and they don't know what to do, but they put their eyes on the Lord. And then it says, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, their spiritual leadership again. Moses doesn't know what to do because Korah's in rebellion, so he bows his head. Jehoshaphat's about to get invaded. What does he do? He bows before the Lord. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord and the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites, sons of Korah, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And so the sons of Korah were not merely just the doorkeepers in the house of God, they were also worship leaders. And it was them in a time of crisis that led the people in worship. And do you remember how the story of Jehoshaphat ends? They, they, the armies are coming, and so Israel gets their army ready, but who do they put in the front? They put the singers. They put the sons of Korah at the front. They were the ones that were singing and that, and that led to the defeat of their enemies. Okay, so with that, so we, we made it through the book of Numbers. We, we made it through a genealogy. Now let's get back into our text, Psalm 84. Here's the first thing that happens in the heart of someone who has a heart for God's house. It starts, it all starts with a longing for God's presence. A longing for God's presence. The reason why we wanna be in the house of God, the reason why we wanna enter into his home is because that's where he is. Verse one says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place. Now, Bible lovely is different from FIFA lovely. Okay, it's different from English Premier League lovely. You know what I'm talking about? Someone crosses the ball into the middle and someone says, oh, it's a lovely ball. Why is it that every soccer commentator is British? I mean, it's... it's I don't understand. Like, can you ever imagine like someone from the Southern United States, well, he just kicked that soccer ball real nice. Like he'd be fired right off the, right off. It's not fair. They all have to be British for some reason, but it's not just saying, oh, it's a lovely ball. The psalmist is not saying, oh, your, your courts are lovely. No, it's not, it's not just that it's, it's nice. He's saying, I love this place with all of my heart. Look at what he says. My soul longs. It faints. It's like, it's like he needs to be in the house of God in order to live. He's falling apart away from the presence of the Lord, to be in the courts of the Lord. He says, my heart and my flesh sing for joy. It was so great. It's so awesome to be a, a part of what God has been doing here over the past several years. It's been amazing to see the volume of singing continue to, uh, to increase because we are supposed to sing with all that we have. So his, his dwelling place is lovely. And we all have this, this longing inside of us a longing for the presence of God. And he says in verse three, even a sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. So the, as they're standing at the door, 
They're, they're seeing birds just kind of fly in and around the, the temple area. You know, birds, they have this incredible ability just to, to build nests just about anywhere. And uh, you see them now that it's spring, even though it doesn't feel like it outside right now. Uh, spring is coming and birds are building nests. Bird, they, can, they, can, they can create nests in like, you know, you're being watched, you know, a bird's eye view. Um, and uh, how about this? I'm not sure. This decoy is really not not uh, effective and um, they don't need a whole lot of space, you know, uh, right on the end of a windshield wiper in a shoe, you know, birds can, uh, can build and this bird found a nice place to stop and, uh, and, find, uh, and find a home. And what's being described here is these little, these little nests that are being built around the temple of God and the psalmist is speaking sort of with envy you know, I wish I could just like set up my home here in the place of worship among the people of God. He says, you are my king and my God. And then he says in verse four, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. See, here's the, here's the funny thing. When this psalm was written, no one dwelled in the house of God. He's, he's talking about a group of people that actually don't exist. The, the first blessing is this hope that one day somehow we're going to be like those birds. One day somehow we're going to live in the very presence of God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. There, are, there is no one who dwells in God's house who is ever singing God's praise. And so it is a longing that is looking forward. He is, he is in the physical temple at this time as a doorkeeper writing this psalm, but he's looking forward to something greater, a greater blessing that will come when we can be in the presence of God 24-7. And we know how the book ends, right? Revelation 21, God says, Behold the, the dwelling place of God is among men and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear. So we will one day get there when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That will be the blessing of verse four. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. And then there's a Selah. There's a rest. So just take a minute right now. Think, just think to yourself. Do you have a longing to be in God's presence? So just take a minute, just, just say la. Just think about that for a second. Now look with me at verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. So it starts with a longing for God's presence and then secondly, it's a relying on God's strength. It's relying on God's strength. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways of Zion. The NIV translated, who have set their heart on pilgrimage. 
on a journey. Life is described in the Bible as us being on a journey. We can, when we read the journey stories in the Bible, when we read about Abraham leaving Ur and going to Canaan, when we read about the people leaving, uh, leaving Egypt and journeying to the promised land, we can find ourselves in those kinds of a story because life is a journey. There is, there is progress and there is purpose in walking and moving forward. The Christian life is described as a walk so many times in the New Testament. And there were three festivals that the people of Israel had to observe each year where they went on a journey, where they went on a pilgrimage, Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of a Pentecost. But this is a metaphorical journey. This is a journey that's going on in someone's heart. In their, in their heart are the highways uh, to Zion, Zion simply means the, the, the dwelling place of God, the city of God. And it says in verse six, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of strings, springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Uh, Baca is not actually a geographic location. It wouldn't be a great name for a town or a place anyway because Baca means weeping. And again, what's being described here is journey is being used as a metaphor and as, as the pilgrims progress on this journey, part of where they go is through the valley of Baca. Maybe you're, maybe you're making your way through the place of weeping right now. Maybe when I brought up the term home, you're thinking about a chair that used to be occupied in that home but that's no longer occupied. Maybe you're thinking about a place that used to feel like home for you, but, but it no longer is. Maybe you're thinking about a church that you used to attend where you no longer feel welcome because of whatever is, and that's why you're here right now. Is because you're going through this valley of Baca, this time of weak, weeping, and listen, the, the truth is... It, Maybe you've come out of it. Maybe you're in it right now. And listen, if you're not there, you're going to be there at some point. We all have to go through the, the valley of Baca. We all go through the valley of, of weeping. But God has a purpose in leading us through these times, doesn't he? It says, they make it a place of spring. So the moisture of tears becomes a life-giving spring. And it blesses the, the everyone uh, uh, around us as well. The early rain, it says at the end of verse 6, also covers it with pools. And I love what it says in this verse because it says that we go through the valley of Baca, not to the valley of Baca. The valley of Baca is not a destination. We're all going to the place in Re- Revelation where God will wipe away every tear. And so we all know in the ultimate end, we are going to get through it. And so often in in our lives, we can have hope that we will get through the difficult seasons that we are facing. One of the lies that our enemy tries to tell us to get us off the path, off the narrow path that God has us and onto the broad way that leads to destruction is when we go through the valley of Baca, he whispers something in our ear. You know what he whispers? He says, it's always going to be this way. It's never going to change you might as well just quit. Where we, I mean, this church is called Hope Bible Church. And so we we need to say, it's not always gonna be this way. 
I have a God that loves me and that has promised to go with me and therefore I have a hope. I'm not going to the Valley of Baca. I'm going through it. I'm not staying there. And then I love verse seven. They go from strength to strength. See, I spent a lot of years in the Christian life just thinking that I go from strength. That if I just got my personal devotion routine lined up, then I would have the strength that I needed to live the Christian life. If I just went to that conference, if I just had that breakthrough moment during that worship service, then I would finally have the strength and then that strength would carry me through the Christian life. That is not how the Christian life works, does it? We do, we have these moments, we have these moment top, these mountaintop moments and they're great, but so often we think, and there's a whole theology in the broader Christian world that just says you need this breakthrough, you need this anointing, you need this second baptism, you need this, some sort of special moment to happen and once you have that, then you're gonna have the strength. Well, that's not how the psalmist describes it. That's not how we get through things like the Valley of Baca. We go from strength to strength. God gives us enough strength. Give us today our daily bread. He gives us enough strength to make it through today. He gives us enough strength to make it through this afternoon, to make it through this 15 minutes. We go from strength to strength. See, God has designed it so that we continually rely on him. Because if we just went from strength and not from strength to strength, then we would start to confuse the fact that, that our strength is somehow coming from us and not from God. But God gives us what we need in every moment. And then I love the assurance at the end of verse seven. So they go from strength to strength and it says, each one appears before God in Zion. This is what I love. Everybody gets there. This is what... Um, Christian theologians call the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. That we might try to climb out of Jesus' hand, but Jesus says, I will never let go of you. We go from strength to strength, and it says, each one appears before God. It may be hard on the journey. Some of us are stumbling forward. Some of us feel like we're not making any progress, and yet we have this promise. And the promise is not rooted in our faithfulness, but in God's faithfulness, that we will all get there. Verse eight, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob and Selah. So here's our second opportunity to pause. Maybe it's a time right now for you to think about a valley of Baca, a time of weeping that you're going through right now. Maybe it's time for you to confess to the Lord and to think about how you've been relying on your own strength or expecting some sort of breakthrough moment rather than just trusting God each moment and each moment to provide what strength is needed. So just take a minute and just rest and have a Selah moment right now. Now look at verse nine. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And so they're 
doing what we ought to do for the leaders of our country. The psalmist here is praying for their king. Kingship in Israel was a little bit different from being the prime minister of of Canada. We we, we don't call uh, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, God's anointed. (laughs) But we do recognize from Romans 13 that he's in the position of power that he's in because God has put him there. But the implications are very different for the people of the Hebrew people of God. But they're, they're praying for their leader. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Then in verse 10 says, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. A day in your courts is, a better, is better than a thousand elsewhere. Nothing compares to the presence of God. Nothing, nothing compares. A day in your courts. A moment in the presence of God is is better than three weeks in Paris. Is better than season's tickets to the senators is better than whatever event you think. If I could only get there, if I could only have that, to spend your whole lifetime in luxury. He says that to be in God's presence for one day is better than a thousand days in any other context. There was a song out written, probably written like before, Half the people in this room were born by, by Matt Redman called uh, Better is One Day. And it just repeated this line, better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. This is, this is where, where that longing begins to overflow And this is our third section of the psalm. The the heading that I want you to put over this section is this. Trusting in God's goodness. Trusting in God's goodness. Because God is good, it is better to be in his presence than it is to be anywhere else. Then look what he says in verse 10. I would rather be a doorkeeper. He's the son of Korah. That's his, that's his job. He's content with where he is. You see, the sons of Korah were Levites. And there was a certain, there was, there was a certain aura surrounding this special tribe among the other tribes of Israel. I mean, they were related to the priests. They're part of Moses and Aaron's clan and and so if someone would recognize your last name or something like that or where you came from, they say, oh, you're a Levite, aren't you? And you'd be like, yeah, I'm a Levite, yeah. Oh, man, do you get to help the priests with the sacrifices? Is that, is that your job? Uh, no, no, I, 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 don't, I, I don't do that. Oh, well, do you, do you help with the ceremonial washings and, and leading the people? No, 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 I don't do that. Well, what do you do? Like a Levite, it must be so exciting, it must be amazing. Well, you know, I... Uh, kind of just stand at the door. I kind of just, I kind of just make sure that everyone's getting through the clearly marked entrance anyway. A little bit redundant. 
but I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Look around, look around this room right now. This is an elementary school gym. This was empty two and a half hours ago. But 20 or 30 doorkeepers came in. 20 or 30 sons and daughters of Korah who could have been sleeping in who could have been doing anything else, chose to come in here, set up all these speakers. I don't even know how they get that up there. (laughs) Set out all of these chairs. You have no idea who they are. And it doesn't matter to them. Because here's why. Serving God is a privilege. And and to have the, the blessing, trusting in his goodness, it's, it's, it would be better to be a door to play an insignificant role like a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. If you're dwelling in the tents, that means other people are serving you. To be a doorkeeper means that you are serving others. Then verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. He's our Sun. He's uh, the source of warmth and life and light. We see the sun, and by seeing the sun, we see everything else. And he's our shield. He's all around us. He protects us. He's our security. And it says, the Lord bestows favor and honor. And then it says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe that? Do you trust in God's goodness that that thing that you want him to do for you right now that you think is so good, that thing that you want him to provide for you now that is so clearly good could not be categorized in any other way than simply good? Do you believe that there is no good thing that he withholds? Verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blesses the one who trusts in you. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father of light. Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to come together for our good. Do we trust that God is good And that he does not withhold anything from us that is good. You know, there are there are times, like the Psalm, like the psalmist says in Psalm 34, there are times where we can taste and see that God is good. Right? There's there's moments where where it's just clear. Taste and see that God is good. Is good, But what's being described here in Psalm 84 is not taste and see that God is good. It is trust and see that God is good. And that's especially true for those of us who may be still in that valley of Baca. And you still haven't got past that part. You're still on that Selah. 
You're still on that rest. You're still on that thinking that through, praying about that right now. Can you truly trust that God is good? Can you trust that he's good when you can't taste that he's good? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The greatest example of God's goodness The greatest example of God not withholding that which is truly good is the fact that God did not withhold his son, Jesus Christ, who ultimately is the the complete fulfillment of Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place. How lovely is your dwelling place, your tabernacle. And we're told in John chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. His dwelling place was set up among us. And so when we think about longing for God's house, Jesus came from God's house. As we think about longing for God's dwelling place, Jesus is the dwelling place of God. When we think about the valley of Baca, we, we, Jesus went through a valley of Baca. It was in the garden of Gethsemane where he wept, where where he sweat drops of blood, where he cried out to God, trusting in God's goodness. And he said, if you can take this cup from me, take it. And isn't it true that his valley of Baca became a spring of life, didn't it? Because Christ went through that agony of Gethsemane. We have the cross, we have the empty tomb and the hope of a resurrection. Verse 9 talks about the anointed king. Jesus is that ultimate anointed king, the son of David. And he came to live a life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve to die so that verse 10 would not just be wishful thinking. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Loved ones, because of what Christ has accomplished for us, we're going to be there for longer than a day. We're not talking about a day in God's courts. We are talking about eternity in his presence. He came from God's presence in order to bring us there. And he has made us more than doorkeepers, hasn't he? He has made us through his sacrifice. Christ was treated the way that we deserve to be treated in order that we might be treated the way Christ deserves to be treated. We are welcomed in, not as doorkeepers. We're brought in right past the door and brought in as loved and cherished citizens of the kingdom, sons and daughters of the living God. And so in light of that reality, in light of that hope, we already are in God's house. First Corinthians chapter uh, 3 verse 16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit, there's that word, dwells, dwells in you. Ephesians 2, 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So each of us individually are the dwelling place of God. And then each of us as the church. So if we have a heart for God's home, a heart for God's house, then we need to be intentional about how we're living our lives as individuals. It means that we need to be zealous for what's happening in the life of a church. And that ultimately we will be in God's presence. Revelation 21.3, I made reference to this already. 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. There was a pastor in Toronto in the 1940s and he was on a train ride from Chicago to Texas and while he was on that train ride he wrote a book. The book was called The Pursuit of God. The Toronto pastor's name was A.W. Tozer and at the end of the first chapter he closes in this way. He says, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him. Or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. They don't need to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Or if he must see them go, One after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For now he has it all in one. And he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. And then he closes that chapter as he closes every chapter of this terrific book with a prayer. He says, oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire, oh God, the triune God. I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Do you have a heart for God's house? Are you longing for his presence and relying on his strength and trusting in his goodness? Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the preaching and teaching from your word that's been happening over the last several weeks as we've been thinking about what your desire is for our home, for our families, or for our singleness, or or for our, uh, our life in community, Lord. And God, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Our our homes will not be havens of love and peace and contentment and joy. It will will not be a place of humility, a place of discipleship, unless the hearts in that home are truly longing for your home. And so God, we pray that you would help us to do that. And God, we thank you that because of what Christ has accomplished, that we, the people of God, that as we come together, we are the temple of God. We are the house of God. And that each of us, as we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, are in fact temples of the living God. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with us to walk in humility, to walk in holiness, to walk with hunger for you. So, God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.